Well, good evening. If you guys have a Bible, open it up to 2 Timothy chapter uh, 3. That's where we're going to be to start this evening. 2 Timothy chapter 3 will be, uh, be in verses 16 and 17 to begin with. And uh, while you're turning there, I just want to make a couple of quick announcements. Um, we uh, are in the process right now of taking applications for our summer missions trips. We have three trips. Uh, that go, one goes to North Africa, another to East Asia, and another to Greece. Those are five to six week trips over the summer. Let me encourage you, if you have not been on an overseas trip, to consider this. Uh, while you are in college, it's one of the best times that you have to utilize your summers to go overseas to share the gospel. Uh, once you graduate, it actually gets a lot harder. Um, once you have a job and they care if you're gone for six weeks at a time. And so uh, we would love to have you guys check that out. Um, you can go onto our website. And you'll find a link to sign up there. And uh, we would love to have you guys participate in that. Also, I just want to give you all a preview of the next couple of weeks. Next week, we are going to talk about the question of why is there so much evil and suffering in the world as we continue with the Tough Questions series. Here's the deal, though. We, uh, Aaron mentioned it earlier. We're not going to have a 6 o'clock service next week because it'll be right in the middle of the Super Bowl. And uh, as much as we'd like to keep going, what we found was that last year uh, nobody came. So um, we are not going to have it next week. Come at 11 o'clock if you want to come to college class. Two weeks from now, we'll, we'll continue with our 6 o'clock service and we're going to actually talk about a biblical view of sex in two weeks. So uh, we'd love to have you guys at that as well. And uh, if you know anybody that might be interested in that, feel free to invite them. And that'll continue uh, within the series. All right, Second Timothy chapter 3, start in verse 16. Paul writes, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Would you pray with me? God, we do want to genuinely come before you tonight to express what we just sang to you, that we want you to purify us for the worship of you, to make our hearts clean, cleanse us from the sin that keeps us from you. Lord, and we do pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to those things that are unseen, those things that are spiritual, and not just those things that are physical and temporal. Father, let us become every day in a greater way and to a greater extent citizens of your kingdom rather than the kingdoms of this earth. Lord, we pray give us wisdom as we talk about your word tonight. Let us understand it. I pray, let us believe it, trust it, let us obey it. God, we thank you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. My five-year-old recently picked up a book at the store. Uh, It's called Animal Tales. It's a series of little golden books. Some of you guys may remember those little golden books from when you were a kid. There's there's dozens of them, and uh, this has four or five in here, and she loves it. She's been reading it a lot, but I was intrigued when I picked it up. There are a couple of stories in this book uh, that kind of piqued my interest. One of them was called How the Leopard Got Its Spots, and the other one was How the Camel Got Its Hump. And uh, both of them I read and I learned a great deal of good information. Um, I'm going to read a little bit to you of how the camel got its hump, just part of it for you this evening. This is one story of how the camel got its hump. Uh, You may want to take notes, by the way. It says, uh, this story takes place when the world was so new that there were only a few animals. 
including the lazy camel. During the first three days of the world, the other animals worked very hard. So here's the other animals. They're working hard. Camels just kind of hanging around. All right. Then horse asked camel to trot with him. But camel said, humph. Dog asked camel to help him fetch and carry. But camel said, humph. Ox asked camel to help him plow. But camel said, humph. The animals begged the djinn or genie of all deserts to do something about the lazy camel. He won't trot, said horse. He won't fetch, said dog. He won't plow, said ox. He just says humph. I'll humph him if you'll kindly wait a minute, said the genie. Alakazam. All right. To the camel, the genie said, do you see that? That's your very own humph that you brought on your very own self by not working. How can I work with a hump on my back? The camel humphed. The genie explained, you can work three times harder because you can live off your hump, and the camel still works three times harder because it has never caught up with the three days that it missed at the beginning of the world. So there he is with his hump. All right, now, that is just one of the four stories in just this little part of the book about how the camel got its hump. All cultures uh, have different stories like this. We call them origin myths. There's actually a name for it. And what it is, is it's a story to explain a feature of our natural world that we don't understand. So camels have humps. Let's make up a story about it how they got their humps. Leopards have spots. How did that happen? Let's make up a story about it. They're called origin myths, and there's dozens of these. If you were to go on the internet tonight and just type in a search, origin myths, you'll see tons of references from all cultures about different features of the natural world. Now, the reason I bring that up is because a lot of people feel that that's essentially what the Bible is, right? That it's a series of origin myths about how our world was created. We don't, we don't have a good understanding, or ancient people didn't have a good understanding of how the world was made or how certain things happened, and so they believed in miracles and magic and God, and that's what the Bible is. It's a storybook to tell us about how things happen that we really don't understand, right? Just to fill in the gaps. That's one theory of the Bible. Another theory of the Bible is that it was written by people who wanted to consolidate their power, Right, that there were men that said, we want to be in charge. And so they picked some books and some writings and they collected them together. And these writings claimed that Jesus was God and they used Jesus' deity to bolster their own power. All right, that's what I call the Da Vinci Code theory. If you've read the Da Vinci Code, this book that came out, I don't know, four or five years ago by Dan Brown. Here's a quote from the Da Vinci Code. He says, the Bible essentially has glaring historical discrepancies and fabrications clearly confirming that the modern Bible was compiled and edited by men who possessed a political agenda to promote the divinity of the man, Jesus Christ, and use his influence to solidify their own power base. So the the belief is, look, it was just written so people could have power. Maybe it's origin myths, maybe it's a power play. There are all kinds of theories about what the Bible is. Now, last week, we talked about the concept of truth. Does truth actually exist? And of course, we argued that absolute truth does exist. What we're going to talk about this week is if you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, then the source of truth for our life is the Bible. We believe that the Bible is where we get truth about who God is, about who we are, about the world around us, about how we can have eternal life. It is the source of all of that information for us how we ought to live, how we ought to reflect God, right? And so uh, if we are Christians, it's not acceptable, of course, to hold that the Bible is just a bunch of origin myths or that it is a power play. But instead, we view the Bible very differently. And it's critical for us, I think, even moving forward and trying to answer some of these tough questions about 
our world and about Jesus and about Christianity, we've got to first look at authority. What is our source of authority? And for a Christian, that is our source of authority. That was historically one of the major emphases of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century was saying, we're not going to listen primarily to the voice of men, but we will listen to the word of God. Sola Scriptura was their battle cry. Scripture alone. So what we want to look at is, is the Bible the word of God? Is it reliable? Is it something we can trust? And where we're going to start is this. What does the Bible claim about itself? We want to evaluate the Bible based on its own claims about itself. And what I mean by that is sometimes I think we're tempted to evaluate the Bible based upon some standard that we bring in from our modern culture that is not applicable to the Scripture. Let me just give you an illustration uh, in modern life. Guys, perhaps you have been taken in recent days to what you might call a chick flick or a girl movie. Right? Uh, something like Julia, Julie and Julia. I haven't seen it, but it looks like lots of cooking right? and all sorts of things like that. Right? Maybe you went to a movie like that and you walk out and when you walk out, you're disappointed. right? Why are you disappointed? Because nothing exploded. right? Nobody got shot. Nothing happened that you considered exciting. Right? But when you think about it, is it really fair to judge that movie by those standards? right? Because it's not Die Hard 7 or whatever it is. It is a girl movie and it's written for a particular audience a particular purpose and so you ought to judge it by that purpose and I think what happens sometimes with the Bible is we tend to judge it as if it were a newspaper or a textbook or anything else except for what it claims to be right and what it claims to be is much greater than any of those other things but we need to look at what does it claim to be all right so I'm going to give you a few passages first of all 2 Timothy 3 that we just read at the beginning all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. All right, it begins by saying all scripture is breathed out. Some of your Bibles may say inspired by God. Actually, I think breathed out is closer to what the original Greek term means. It's God breathing out his word into this book. All right, it's inspired, but not inspired like, like a Josh Groban song or a really good piece of birthday cake or something like that. It's inspired because God breathed it out. It is God's words breathed down to mankind. So God goes, ah, right? And his words are in that book. And as a result, because it's God's word, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness, so that we can be equipped to do God's will. The ultimate purpose of this book is that we can know and do God's will. If it is God's word, a a corollary to that has to be that it's true. If God breathed it out, it it can't contain error, falsehood, factual problems, because it is the word of God, and that is what it claims for itself. But it is also a book that God used men to write, 2 Peter chapter 1. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, what 2 Peter seems to be saying is that these men sat down to write and God used their personalities, their temperaments, their cultures, and yet God revealed to them what he wanted them to write. But they weren't sitting there with like an MP3 recorder saying, go God, talk. Instead, God revealed to them using their own personalities and they wrote. And so it is God's word written through the pen of mankind. That is the Bible's perception of itself. As a result, because it's God's word, as Hebrews 4 says, it's powerful. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So it's written to lay us bare, to reveal who we are before God, so that we can transform into the image of Jesus Christ. The Bible claims to be this unbelievably powerful book that is true, that is God's word. The modern word that people use for the Bible being true is inerrant, meaning it is without error. The modern word that they use for it will accomplish its intent is infallible. It does not fail. And it's inspired of God. That's what the Bible claims for itself. Okay, now, of course, we want to look at are the claims true? All right, I'm going to, in, in a way tonight, this is going to be a little bit atypical of uh, some of my messages in here because I'm going to give you guys a lot of information. All right, now, don't feel like you have to memorize all of this. Feel free to write it down. I'm going to put all of, this, all of this, this PowerPoint will be on the website. I'm going to put some resources on the blog. But what we're going to do is we're going to walk through some evidence tonight to demonstrate, is the Bible what it claims to be? Is it the Word of God? Does it have the character of a divine book? Or is it simply a human book put together by people to explain things or to gather power? All right, so we're going to look at, are the claims of the Bible accurate? And we're going to look at a few lines of evidence this evening. The first one is what you might call internal evidence. In other words, internal evidence is evidence from within the book itself. All right, we're not looking at right now history, archaeology, anything like that. But just looking within the book itself, does it hold up to its own standards? All right, and we notice a few things when we look at it. One, there is remarkable agreement in theme and doctrine across this book. Uh, Over 1,500 years is how long it took for the Bible to be written. 1,500 years, and there are 40 authors. And some of them are kings, some of them are shepherds, some of them are on the high end of the socioeconomic scale, some of them on the low end. They live in different countries, they live in different time periods, and yet across these 40 people, 1,500 years, it's remarkable the consistency you have in thought and understanding about who God is and what the world is like and the problem of mankind being sin and the solution to that problem being God's son, Jesus Christ, who died for us and rose again. You have this unbelievable agreement. And certainly people talk about, uh, well, maybe there's contradictions in the Bible. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Maybe there's errors in the Bible. But even if you granted that there were one or two, which I'm not, but even if you did, it's much more remarkable to me that you have all of this agreement. Now think about this. All right, there's a couple hundred of us in here tonight. If I were to take uh, 40 of us in this room, and sit us down and begin to talk about any topic, we might have a hard time coming to an agreement, right? And we live in the same town. We're all roughly uh, contemporaries, right? Uh, You go to the same university, but if I were to ask you a question, you know, what do you think uh, is the best move for the A&M football team next year? I might get 40 different answers, right? Much less if we start talking about politics, talking about religion, It'd be hard to get 40 of us on the same page. And yet you have 40 authors across 1,500 years. Think about that. If we then added to our group somebody from 500 AD who lived in Poland, you'd get a crazy different perspective, wouldn't you? And yet in the scripture, we have this remarkable agreement. And one of the things that I'm going to contend tonight is despite accusations that the Bible contradicts itself, I don't believe that it does. Most of the accusations I've seen are things like this. In Matthew 20, Jesus heals two blind men. Right? Mark 10 only mentions one blind man in what seems like the same event. And people will bring that up and say, see, it's a contradiction. Were there two? Were there one? What you have to realize is this, that 
the way that we tell stories doesn't always mean that we tell every detail of the story. Let me give you an illustration. If I were talking tonight to say Andrew and Mark, right, and, and we're talking and I begin to get into a heated debate with Andrew about whether or not he should cut his hair, okay? And as we begin to talk, the debate gets more and more heated, but Mark is standing there still and maybe Mark occasionally interjects something and then I go home and I tell my wife, man, Andrew was really kind of being a pain today with what he was talking to me about. We had this conversation and I don't mention Mark. Am I lying to her? Am I wrong in relaying the conversation? No, I'm emphasizing one person in the conversation. And I think that's what goes on often in a situation like this. None of the gospel writers, for example, tell us everything that happened in Jesus' life every minute. They choose to tell us the things that they deem to be the most important. And they're both true but they're emphasizing different aspects of the story. Somebody else might see that conversation and go, boy, Matt was talking to Mark and Andrew. Doesn't mean either of us is wrong. Doesn't mean either of us is lying. Another illustration is often people will point out Jesus' parables have different wording, right? Is that a contradiction or not? Well, not when you look at the way ancient books were written, right? In this day and age, we look at a newspaper and we say it's very important that they write down every word exactly as I said it, even though if you've ever been quoted in the newspaper, you know they get it wrong about 95% of the time. But that's what we look for. That is not what they looked for in ancient storytelling. They were telling a story much like you might tell a story to me about a conversation you had last week. You're not going to remember the exact words. You're going to get the essence, and that's what you're shooting for of what was said, and that's what they did. The only time you might want every detail precise, ladies, is when you get engaged, right? And all your friends gather around and they say, tell me everything that happened down to the very word, right? How was his hair combed? When did you brush your teeth, right? And, and all of these things have to cohere together, right? But typically when we tell a story, we're trying to get the essence. In, in biblical terms, we call that the obsissima vox, the voice in essence. It's not a contradiction or an error. It's the Bible being true to its own standards, which are good standards of correctness. I've not seen a good illustration, frankly, or accusation of a contradiction in the Scripture. If you have one, by all means, feel free to tell me. But I've not seen an illustration that I'm convinced where the Scripture is an error and contradiction. You have this remarkable theme, remarkable agreement in theme and doctrine. Internally, you also have eyewitness testimony. Men who knew Jesus and who were a part of these events are writing down what happened with Jesus within 20 or 30 years of it happening. And they claim that he rose from the dead. Now think about that. If 20 years from now I were to write down a story about somebody in this room dying and rising from the dead and I publish it and I put it out there for public consumption and it's not true, how easy would it be for somebody else to come along and simply say, now I knew that guy and he's still dead. Come here, I'll, I'll take you to his grave. And yet within 20 or 30 years of Jesus' death, you have people saying he rose from the dead. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that there are still 500 people alive who saw him alive after his resurrection, in essence saying, go ask them. You don't believe me? Go ask them. They saw him alive. And so these eyewitnesses write down what they see of Jesus. And and to be frank, one of the most compelling evidences for me of the reliability of the scripture is the resurrection accounts. Because you have to deal with what happened. These men were so convinced that their Savior rose from the dead that they died for it. Now you have to remember, Peter and Paul and the apostles, they did not all of a sudden gather all this power. They were crucified and hanged and stoned to death. Now, you can argue maybe they went to the wrong tomb, but how easy would that be to fix? 
somebody busted in and stole the body, right? Somebody managed to roll away this ginormous stone with four Roman guards standing outside and take the body away and hide it. How easy would it be for somebody else to produce it? Right? I've even heard people try to argue that like wolves broke in and ate the body. How did they do that? Nibble through the stone? I mean, how, how in the world did they do that? Right? And I've not heard an account of the resurrection that really accounts for it other than the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So you have this great eyewitness testimony. What's great about the eyewitness testimony also, I think, is it includes even embarrassing details. Again, if the church were trying to consolidate power, why would they take the man that, that the Catholic Church would say was their first pope, Peter, and include this story in Luke 22 about Peter denying his Savior three times? That's not what you do if you're trying to make somebody look powerful, if you're trying to make somebody an object of adoration. Right, why would they have the apostles over and over and over and over again in Matthew being chastised by Jesus for being so stupid? Read the book of Matthew and see how many times Jesus says, you have little faith. Oh, you dull, hard of hearing, dumb people, right? Over and over again. It doesn't read like an account to bolster the power of a few people. Look at it this way. If you decided I'm going to get LASIK eye surgery, you go and you interview the doctor. The doctor wants to get your business. He wants to get your money. He's going to sit down with you. He's going to show you pictures of people whose eyes are great. He's going to give you testimonials of people that it worked for. He's not necessarily going to go, oh, and by the way, there are three people I accidentally gouged out their eyes last week. Don't worry about them, though. Look at the others. Don't worry about the ones I blinded. He's not going to tell you that. He's going to clean up the story. When you look at the Bible, you don't see this cleaning up of the narrative. It includes even embarrassing details about people who were closest to Jesus. So you have this great eyewitness testimony. You also have fulfilled prophecy. Things like Micah 5.2, predicting that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. All right, one of my favorite comes from Daniel 9. I'm just going to share it with you all really quickly tonight. Daniel 9, 24 to 27, says this, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. All right, I'm going to keep going here. All right, so Daniel is writing in the 6th century BC, and he predicts that after 69 weeks, all right, in those weeks, it's literally 69 sevens, 69 groups of seven years. After that period of time, the Messiah will be cut off. He'll be killed. All right, so Daniel says, from a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. He's writing in the exile. All right, March 5th, 444 BC. This is in Nehemiah chapter two. You have a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem given by King Artaxerxes. The date is written down by Nehemiah. All right, March 5th, 444 BC. From there, it says 62 and seven weeks. All right, that's 483 Jewish years, 69 times seven. All right. One Jewish year was about 360 days, so that equals out to this many days, 173,880. All right, hang with me. You take that, you convert it to our current Gregorian years, 365 days. What you get is basically 476 years. Take March 5th, 444 BC, add 476 years, you get March 30th, AD 33. The Messiah will be cut off. All right. 600 years before the coming of Jesus, Daniel writes down to the day when the Savior will be crucified. 
That's just one of many prophecies in the Old Testament. So internally, you have this fulfilled prophecy. So as you look at the scripture, it has the character of a divine book. All of these different perspectives, 40 people over 1,500 years, that's very different from a book like the Quran, for example, where it's one man's perspective in one culture that influences people toward a particular cultural view of the world. Instead, the scripture seems to transcend culture. People from all cultures and all nations have embraced Jesus Christ and not been forced to become European or Jewish or any other culture. The scripture seems to be a divine book internally. And as the church began to look at these different books, they began to read these different books by these authors. By about the 2nd century A.D., They had settled in on these are the books that we are going to obey and follow for the life of our church. And through the Holy Spirit, the community began to compile together in one book the writings that they considered sacred. Not because they were trying to consolidate power, not because they said uh, these are the ones that are our favorites, but because these are the ones that were written by people who were close to Jesus Christ, that were apostles or prophets. These are the ones that speak most powerfully to the person of Jesus Christ. So internally, the Bible is a divine book. All right, let me, external evidence. External evidence would be history and archaeology. You have historical attestation. Uh, You have guys like Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, who writes about Jesus and confirms that, yeah, Jesus is a real person. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and Greeks. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. And the tribe of Christians so called after him has still to this day not disappeared. So here's Josephus writing in the first century that says there are already people worshiping this man named Jesus. It's hard to argue when you have this external attestation from history. It's hard to argue that Jesus is not real or that there are not people very early in history that are worshiping him. And the reason they did is because he rose from the dead. Tacitus, a first century Roman historian, writes something very similar. You also have archaeological attestation. Archaeology doesn't necessarily prove the Bible to be true. Archaeology can be difficult to interpret. What, What I've seen over the years is the more that is uncovered, the more the scripture seems to be verified. It's very different from a book like the Book of Mormon, right? where you've got these stories of hundreds of gigantic cities all across North America, ancient cities supposedly with bronze chariots and all these things, and not a shred of evidence has been found. In fact, with the Book of Mormon, the Smithsonian issued a letter in 1996 that says this, the Smithsonian Institution has never used the Book of Mormon in any way as a scientific guide. Smithsonian archaeologists see no direct connection between the archaeology of the New World and the subject matter of the book, and then goes on to list all of the archaeological problems. In contrast, you have a great deal of archaeological evidence to bolster the Bible. All right, one example is this. Prior to about 1994, many scholars assumed that King David was a mythical figure, that he was created by the writers of the Bible just to demonstrate there's this great dynastic leader of our people. But in 1994, in northern Israel, they found an inscription that mentioned the house of David, written by a foreign king about how he had defeated in battle a king from the house of David. And all of a sudden, David's dynasty and David the king is confirmed. Luke writes about a tetrarch named Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. People used to think that he was fictional because they could not find any external reference to him until they found an inscription dating between 14 and 37 AD that confirmed it. 
And so you've got all this archaeological attestation as well, that at least the Bible is written in a real place about real people in a real time. It doesn't prove that Jesus rose from the dead, but it at least proves it's not crazy to think that this book is accurate. You also have what we call bibliographic evidence. This is the, kind of the third major way that you determine if an ancient book is true. Bibliographic evidence is this. Are the copies that we have, the manuscripts that we have, are they accurate? One of the accusations that gets leveled against the Bible is, well, it's changed over time. Right, the Bible that we have in our lap has changed over time. There's this group uh, called the Jesus Seminar. A bunch of uh, scholars with PhDs, they get together and they toss marbles into a little bowl and they try to decide, did Jesus say this? Did he say that? And they have black marbles and red marbles and green marbles, right? It's great when you've got a PhD and play with marbles and all this kind of stuff. And so these guys, they, they get to vote on whether Jesus' words are real. Here's the problem with that. There's uh, evidence that the New Testament that we have is the same as it was when it was written. The Old Testament is the same way. Let me start with the Old Testament. used to be that the oldest manuscripts we had of the Old Testament, that is Hebrew manuscripts, were from about 800 AD, written by a group called the Masoretes that were basically scribes. They copied out the Old Testament. All right, but then in 1947, there was this Bedouin shepherd boy wandering around the hills of Palestine, and he's looking apparently for a lost goat. And uh, he can't find his goat, but he takes a rock and he kind of tosses it into a cave and he hears a shattered jar. So he walks into this cave and he finds all of these jars, clay pots, stuffed with scrolls. So he begins to look around and and he finds that there's just dozens of them. And as it turns out, in the caves all surrounding this area, there there are hundreds of these scrolls. And uh, he takes a few of the scrolls and he doesn't know what, what to do with them. So they hang them on their tent poles for a few months and stuff like that. And the scrolls eventually get out. They get to an archaeologist who looks at them and finds out that these were Old Testament scrolls that were written that dated back as far as 200 B.C. And one of them in particular was a scroll of the book of Isaiah. All right? They're called the Dead Sea Scrolls. One of them was a scroll of the book of Isaiah, the whole book of Isaiah, that matched except for basically one word, it matched the copies that we had in 800 AD. A thousand years earlier, suddenly we have evidence that the Old Testament has not changed for a thousand years. That's amazing. Uh, There's no other ancient book that has that kind of evidence. New Testament, you have almost an embarrassing wealth of manuscripts that help us know what originally it said. Right? Uh, the more manuscripts, the more you can determine what did the original writers write. Now, keep in mind, with all of these, we don't have the original. You know, Paul's original manuscript, nobody's got it somewhere in a museum. All we have are copies because they used papyrus, right? the reeds uh, that came from beside uh, the river, right? and that breaks down over time. But we have copies, and the more copies you have, the more you can determine what was actually said, all right? the more accurate. Let me just show you guys a uh, chart here that compares the New Testament to other ancient books. Look at Homer, for example, the Iliad. Some of you guys have read Homer's Iliad, perhaps the Odyssey in a class. It was written 9th century BC, so 800, 850 BC. The earliest copy fragment we have is from 400 BC, which is pretty old, right? But that's 500 years after the book was written. There are 643 copies, and there's about 95% accuracy among the copies. That's pretty good. So when you read Homer's Iliad, you don't go, "Ah, I don't think that's what Homer really said. You believe it. It's, it's pretty accurate. And with 643 copies, they can compare them and figure out where are the changes, where are the errors, and they get uh, very, 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 very close, if not completely there, to what Homer actually wrote. But look at the New Testament. Written between 40 to 100 AD, the earliest copy fragment we have is from 125 AD, 25 years after 
the closing of the canon. A number of copies, more than 24,000. 6,000 or so of those are Greek, which is the original language that was written in. The others are Latin and Syriac and, and other uh, smaller languages in which it was copied. Right? 24,000 manuscripts compared to 643. And they're 99% accurate. Out of about uh, 20,000 lines in the New Testament, there's 40 where there's small differences. And most of them are things that say, like, it'll say Jesus Christ here on one, and it says Christ Jesus over here on another. Right? Nothing that affects anything significant. And as you look at it, you see that the accuracy of the New Testament and of the Bible in your lap is extremely solid, more so than any other ancient book. One thing that's interesting, this, this fragment that they found in 125 AD, it's called P52. And it is a small fragment of a portion of the book of John. Okay? Um, prior to their finding this, liberal scholars assumed, because John talks so much about how Jesus is God, they assumed that the book of John could not have been written prior to about 200 AD for this long development and history of doctrine for people to believe that Jesus was God. Well, they find this manuscript in Egypt, pretty far away from Palestine or from Ephesus, where it was probably written, which means it had to travel there. It had to get there a few years. It had to develop authority for people to be copying it, which means you're probably talking about this manuscript is dated at least 25 to 30 years after the original writing, which dates John before the end of the first century. People are already talking about Jesus as God. That's unbelievable. So the New Testament, in terms of bibliographic evidence, is so much more reliable than any other book. The Bible you have in your lap, you can trust it as the Word of God. One last line of evidence I'm going to give you all is just simply practical evidence. Does it do what it says it does? Does it change lives? Does it hold the power of God? Even if I didn't mention the millions of individual lives it changed, look at what the Bible and the Word of God has done in cultures. Within three or four hundred years of the resurrection of Jesus, the Roman Empire became Christian. The Roman Empire that persecuted Christians, that was pagan to the core, that worshipped dozens if not hundreds of different gods, became a Christian empire because of the influence and the power of this book. In the 16th century, our culture went from a place of real spiritual darkness to a place where men and women were reading the word of God again because of a few guys that read it and they saw the power in believing that there is a God who sent his son Jesus Christ to die and rise again for our sins. And by belief alone in him and his grace, we have eternal life, not by earning your way to heaven. Scripture has changed my life, and I'm sure many of you in here would say the same thing. It's an unbelievably powerful book. Which I think is why to this day, if you read the Bible or you talk about Jesus in a public setting, you get a very different reaction than if you read any other holy book. It's a powerful book. The Bible is the very words of God. So given that, how should we respond? Quickly, I'm going to give you guys just three ideas. How should we respond? First of all, trust it. Trust it. You can trust that the Bible in your lap is, is the word of God. It hasn't changed over the years. It's not all messed up because of different manuscripts. It's not a bunch of hokey stories that were made up. It's not a way for people to consolidate their power so they can control you. It is the word of God that he gave you. So don't be embarrassed about it. Read it, study it, know it. It is the word of God. It may be that you're here and you don't yet know Jesus. You don't have a relationship with Jesus, right? And I would challenge you, study and read the Bible. And see if it doesn't hold up to the claims I'm saying. Fundamental message of the Bible is this. That you and I have disobeyed God. 
because of our sin. And as a result, we were all destined for an eternity apart from God in hell. But the whole story of the Bible is a story of redemption. God redeeming the world and redeeming mankind. And he did this through his son, Jesus Christ, who took our penalty uh, on our behalf by dying on the cross. And then he rose again so we can have eternal life if we believe in him. That is the message of the scripture. One cohesive message all the way through. So trust it. Know it. Study it. If you're not in a Bible study where you're studying the word of God directly, I'd encourage you to get in one. Other books and other writings, they, they can be great and they can be helpful, but get into this word. Right? We've seen a move uh, in really recent Christianity toward this love of theology and books of men, but people not wanting to get into the Bible. Right? Open up the original source and study it and know it. This is what will change your life. Right? And then, of course, thirdly, obey it. Do what it says. Because it wants to, as Hebrews says, open you up, transform you into the person that God wants you to be through Jesus Christ. Abraham Lincoln wrote this, I believe the Bible is the best gift that God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. I have been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. Echoes what we see in John chapter 6. After Jesus gave a particularly difficult and offensive sermon, some of his listeners walked away. And Jesus turned to his 12 disciples and he said, are you guys going to go away as well? And Simon Peter says, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Simon says, look, where else are we going to go? You've got eternal life. Eternal life is in these words. It's powerful. It's true. It promises to do what it says it will do. Which is provide the message of eternal life to those who will seek it. And to give us a way that we can know and love and worship and imitate our Savior. Let me challenge you guys to trust it, to know it, to obey it. Would you guys pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I confess that even at times, like I'm sure many in here, I've wondered, is it true? Is it real? Is it just a bunch of stories? Lord, give us confidence in your word to know that it is true, to know that you want to change us through it. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark, but revealing yourself to us through Jesus Christ and then through this written word that tells us about Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as we go out this week, you would give us energy to do your will. I pray you would give us power through your spirit to do what you want us to do. Lord, we love you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you all soon.